0: Welcome to Afternoons With Me. I'm Bill Arnold. I hope you enjoyed that last hour with Vince Miller. What a great guy. It's a great uh, hour. If you missed any of it, definitely want to head over to MyFaithRadio.com. You will find the afternoon show page and you can start uh, right from the beginning because we talked about things that can help men, disciplines, and this might be something you're going to want to pass on to someone you know of the male gender. So uh, this can be a great uh, hour as well. Kim Cattola is in the studio. We're going to bring her on in just a minute. And then Dr. Michael Brown's going to be with us in the second half hour. He's written a new book on Job. So that's going to be a great uh, time with him as well. So take 60 seconds, and bring on Kim.
1: We live in a connected world, but
0: no advancement in technology can offer real peace, hope, or encouragement. You can use technology to stay connected to the true source of life, God, when you download the free Faith Radio Network app. The app allows you to listen to previously aired programs, read articles, and listen to the live stream. Search for Faith Radio Network in your app store to download the free Faith Radio Network app today.
1: We're connecting faith and life together.
0: It helps me stay positive and keep a positive outlook on life. It brings up my spirit and um, really...
1: It gives me more knowledge on the Bible. Learning how to apply God's word to everyday life and how to take hold of everything Christ died to give us
2: and make it real and alive in my life.
0: Faith Radio. Welcome to the show. If you just climbed into the car, you're going to be so glad. I have Kim Cattola in the studio. You know Kim from Cradle My Heart Radio, and she is uh, now with the Fayette Pregnancy Resource Center in Georgia. Kim, welcome. Hi, Bill. Every time I talk to you, I'm always uh, you always bring the most uh, relevant information about the pro-life movement, and you get me informed of what's going on uh, politically and legally, and I love it.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, I think uh, it's been quite a while since I've had my own radio show, mm-hmm. but all you have to do is kind of put a little meat in front of me for bait.
0: I bet. And,
2: <laughs> and you're I in the find bro- Minnesota- that I still have a lot to say. <laughs> yes,
0: the Minnesota Broadcasting Hall of Fame. So every time you come in, I always get a little nervous. Oh. <laughs> I just get a little nervous. That's
2: so funny. It's true. It's so funny. You're a
0: natural. No, I mean, I I, I listened to you for decades.
2: Well, I mean, I was on the air for a really long time.
0: Yeah. So I was on the
2: air for a really long time.
0: Mm-hmm. I would love to uh, talk a little bit about the late-term abortion controversy.
2: You know, um, yeah, so someone, a couple of people that I know, one very pro-life and one uh, getting there, used to be very, very pro-choice, but is is moderating his opinion somewhat. But, you know, the last hill that he's standing on is that the pro-life Movement is very guilty of misinformation and inflammatory and incendiary language and all these talking points that he's getting from abortion rights activists and proponents. And so one of the things that they're really pushing right now is that it's a complete lie and it's a myth that abortion is legal through all nine months of pregnancy, something that President Donald Trump has repeated again and again and again whenever the pro-life issue comes up. He did it recently at the March for Life. And, you know, he will say things like Governor Northam uh, would allow for a baby to be executed if it survives an abortion. He didn't put it that succinctly or elegantly, but that's what he was talking about. And essentially, it is true. Now, Bill, if you and I were talking about this, what Governor Northam said was we would withhold care. That's what you do with a child who survives abortion, whose parents don't will for that child to live. That's what happens. And whether or not it's, you know, very late term, that's what happens. And that's well documented. So that means comfort care, palliative care. Mm -hmm. But it means no food, no water, no medical attention whatsoever. It means a warm blanket and you put the child aside to die. Right. So is that an execution? I mean, you might object to say to his, his choice of words to say, you know, the governor supports executing children, but the governor said he did support the law, and essentially what he's talking about is allowing a child to die through neglect. Mm. So you know what I mean? <laughs> there, there is some rhetoric going on, maybe on both sides, but at the end of the day, is that child's life protected under the law? And the answer is no. You know, and there are just because late term abortion isn't happening in every state. uh, Another thing people don't really understand, Bill, is that although it's legal in all 50 states because the Constitution says it has to be, uh, fewer than five percent of medical providers will even do an abortion. And despite, you know, Warren Buffett and others Paying billions of dollars in medical schools in the last ten years to mainstream abortion and try to get it, you know, cru- included in every um, MD curriculum. Uh, very few providers are willing to do it because it's so at odds with everything else that they're trained to do mm-hmm. <laughs> as physicians, right? And so most doctors won't go anywhere near it. Most physicians won't go anywhere near abortion. But that doesn't mean that it isn't legal. It is legal in in all states through all nine months of pregnancy, and it's because of the Doe v. Bolton ruling, ruled the same day as Roe v. Wade, which said anything that threatens a woman's health, including her mental health, is a pretext or a reason for an abortion. So I could go in today at nine months pregnant and I could say, I cannot do this. My mental health is at risk and I could provide some sort of, you know, evidence of that, uh, maybe I could say I was depressed. Maybe I could say I wanted to harm myself. And God forbid, there are situations where mm-hmm. an intervention is required. But what would you do, Bill, if I'm nine months pregnant and I say I'm going to harm myself? You'd say, let's get this baby and get that baby to safety and give you the care you need.
0: Right. That's we would what not say. say, let's
2: kill this baby. No. Which is what an abortion does. And and that is that's the law, that she can destroy the pregnancy up to nine months, or whatever, 40 weeks. And there are seven states in the U.S. where that is taking place. And there are providers that are doing this. And, he, you know, this, talking about these two people that I know, you know, the, the one who wants women to have that right just refuses to believe that it's so. It's not so. In fact, you know, Republicans or conservatives are working to curtail abortion access. And it, it's just not true. Well, it is true, and even the Washington Post has said it. You know, and when do you ever read their Four Pinocchios, Three Pinocchios when they do their fact checker? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they looked at this claim that the U.S. is only one of seven nations that will uh, that will allow late term abortions, and we're in company with people, you know, places like China, North Korea, right? Not not the real human right. rights shining beacons of the world, right? Right. Um, and when the Washington Post looked into it, they said it was surprisingly true. <laughs> right? We're, we're surprised that a conservative would put out a true statement like this. That's you know uh, something you know, nobody wants to hear or believe. But they went so far as to give it the Ge- Geppetto check mark, <laughs> which in their Pinocchio mm-hmm. measure means true. Yeah. There's no there's no falsehood about it whatsoever. So, you know. There's a big pushback because President Trump spoke at the March for Life and because he mentioned, you know, that, look, we have, we have politicians who are so far from protecting life before birth that they would allow, you know, for it to be destroyed at any point in a pregnancy. There's a big pushback. That's not true. That's misinformation. That's fear mongering. That's a lie. You know, it's more of his lies and so on and so on. But it is true. We may, not, I, we may not agree about the way that he said it. You know, if I were his speechwriter, I would have put it a little differently mm-hmm. <laughs> for him. But the facts of what he is saying are true, as hard as it is for us to believe that in, in our country. You know, as hard as it is for us to accept that.
0: Kim, I had a guest on the show, and you'll probably be able to help me with who this is. But she was a nurse, and she had to... I think there was a child taken from a botched abortion to this room where this baby was laid on a table and left to die. And she went in and held the baby for 40 minutes.
2: Probably Jill Stanek, it sounds like her story. Might
0: be Jill Stanek, yeah.
2: Yeah, and well, I think the baby had Down syndrome. Okay. If I remember Jill's story, and again, this is just my my recollection of it. It was a
0: botched abortion.
2: Well, the baby survived, yes. So the baby survived. Yes. And... They, What they did in cases like this, when a baby survived an abortion attempt, is they put it in a warm blanket and they left it in the soiled utility room. Mm-hmm. And I, that detail of the story has always stayed with me. But yeah. You know, the final indignity oh. to a helpless child. Where are you going to put them until they expire? The soiled utility Oof. room, Right. This is where the dirty linen of the hospital goes, Mm -hmm. and this is where the babies are put until they expire. And it took in her case, so this was the first time she'd experienced that. And she said, well, I'm not going to leave this baby in the soiled utility room. So she sat there and held the baby for 40 minutes, and then later she challenged the leadership in the hospital, which was ostensibly a Christian institution, and it cost her her job, but she's become, you know, a strong voice for life. Mm -hmm. I think she was probably one of the sponsors or writers of the Born Alive Protection Act that was signed under President Bush uh, because she had seen it and lived it and knew how horrendous it really is.
0: Kim, this is always powerful. It's hard to um, process this information because it's so hard to hear.
2: Well, it sounds like some developing world country that has no civilized, you know what I mean? No, it's it does. A, It just sounds like a, some dystopian uh, fiction, does Not really it?
0: happening in some nice suburban hospital somewhere in right. the U.S.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that, you know, a million children lose their lives to abortion in America every year. So what is it, 3,000 a day, right? And, and when, for me, you know, the, the big cognitive dissonance, the big disconnect is that for us as women, and I know some people might get upset with me over this, but for us as women... Uh, one of our superpowers is the ability to give birth.
1: That
0: mm-hmm. is a superpower. Sorry, power. Bill. You're <laughs> no, a guy, no, I, I get it. I celebrate. I celebrate that.
2: <laughs> this is something God ordained for us, mm-hmm. and it's our deal, and it is a superpower. <laughs> I it's don't disagree. A, it's an amazing, incredible thing. Yeah. And yet there is a huge group of women who have convinced other women that this is not our superpower, that this is what will limit us in life. Mm -hmm. And that the only way that we'll advance is to eliminate this uh, capability that we have, you know, and to eliminate our children in the bargain. And for me, it's, um, it's like a mass delusion that we're under in this country, that somehow to advance ourselves as women, we have to you know, emasculate ourselves. We have to not be women. We have to take away the essential (laughs) aspect of womanhood. Now, I'm not saying you have to have children to be a woman. I'm not saying motherhood is the only thing that defines us as women. But what I'm saying is it sets us apart. It's a beautiful gift Mm -hmm. in the Lord's design for us. And yet, um, I don't know. I mean, as Isaiah said, woe to us for calling good evil and evil good. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, because um, calling children a, a curse when they're a blessing, amen. Is where we are. Yeah,
0: Kim Catola is my guest. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more. Glad to have Kim Cittola in studio. And Kim, these are hard stories. They're sad, um, but there's always hope. There's always hope that uh, fewer abortions are taking place across the country, and I think the numbers are way down, aren't they?
2: They are. And the, the thing to know, Bill, is that, you know, as Scott Klusendorf trained me in pro-life apologetics in the case for life, there's only one question we have to answer. What is the unborn? And if it's another human being, we have to treat them as we would every other valued member of the human family. If it's not a human being, that doesn't matter. We can do whatever Mm -hmm. we want. Mm -hmm. You know, but the science is clear that life begins at conception, and there's no controversy in embryology about this. It's just a philosophical question of when we should begin to value life, Mm -hmm. and we want to move that line. You know, Pete Buttigieg said in response to a question about, you know, where he stands on abortion, he said... The best I can offer is that if we can't agree on where to draw the line as to, you know, when it should and shouldn't be legal, the next best thing we can agree on is who should draw the line. And so in my opinion, it's the woman who's faced with that decision in her own life. In other words, since we don't know when children should be valued, we're going to leave that to women and the government's not going to offer any protection to the youngest members of the human family. I mean, if you, you know, it, it, we trot out a toddler, right? If we tried to really, if we did that for children at age two, we said, mom's no best. de can just go away because mom's no best. We don't know really where to draw the line into what is you know abusive and destructive parental behavior well of course we know where to draw that line Mm -hmm. right and and if we again rely on science to inform our ethics we ought to be protecting human life at its earliest stages as well the government most certainly has an interest in the youngest members of the human family it's a difficult turnaround because we've we've you know advanced this idea and it's a philosophical idea That there is some sort of bodily autonomy that because a child is still living within his or her mother's body, his or her mother's body, um, that, you know, she has some special circumstance. And for me, that just means you're saying she owns that property so she can destroy it at will. And that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, we reject those ideas when we reject slavery, right? Mm -hmm. We can't own another human being. I mean, the fact that the child is residing there ought to, you know, inspire us to help her take a greater responsibility toward protecting and nurturing that that young life rather than giving her license to destroy it. So, yeah, Buttigieg, uh, this was in an exchange with, um, it was at a town hall, Fox News town hall, and Kirsten Day is... One of the principals at a group called Democrats for Life, and she said, "Look, you know, is there no place for me in the Democrat Party? Because you changed, you know, the party changed the language in the platform, um, which formerly uh, had allowed for a difference of opinion on the abortion question, and now it's there. You have to toe the party line, and be for abortion without exception, and you know, without apology, and without any limits." And uh, he said, no, there's, there's really just, I, I'm on board with that platform. Mm. You know, she pressed. She said, there are 21 million of us. How can you say that we are the inclusive party if you're not going to include us and S- allow for our, our viewpoint?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, Kim, when you say there's 21 million of us.
2: Democrats for life.
0: Demo- there's 21 million Democrats for life. Well,
2: I don't know if they're registered in her okay. group, but their polling, yeah. in so, other words, yeah. indicates that people who are, are, you know, liberal politically, uh-huh. Um, on social issues are also pro-life politically. And, you know, they're, they really have no, they're, they're people without a party because, you know, they just are not welcomed in the, in the Democrat party. they they have no voice there, I should say.
0: So where do they end up?
2: Well, you know, yeah, that's a really good question. And mm-hmm. I know, I know, um, I've not met Kristen, but I know one of the other principals in the group, or at least a very vocal member, um, a man named Charlie Comozzi. And he teaches ethics, I think, at Fordham Mm -hmm. University. Um, He's an animal rights activist and a pro-life activist. And so he has, you know, he's occupying a a little bit different territory than um, some others in the pro-life community. But I think he would definitely say that he is more liberal politically. Would not identify himself as conservative, um, and he's worked very, very tirelessly to help you know persuade others who are liberal politically to you know take this issue more seriously and to 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 take it more scientifically, to take it more ethically, rather than simply saying, "Well, it's a woman's right, and that's the end of the discussion," mm-hmm. um, because there are other lives involved beyond the woman who's making that decision to terminate the pregnancy. There's another life involved every time.
0: Yeah. So I had a, I had a friend ask me, she said, how come you don't ever have progressive Christians on your show? And how would you define a progressive Christian?
2: How would I? Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing that came to mind, maybe this isn't fair. Okay. <laughs> Extra biblical. Okay. <laughs> Most progressive Christians that I've engaged with... Um, put a higher value on social justice outreach than on biblical truth. Um, Maybe that's unfair. Maybe I just haven't met enough progressive Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, you know, God's word is so clear for us on this issue, Mm -hmm. you know, on the life issue, that life begins not only at conception, as science proves, but that it begins before conception in the mind of God you know he he is our maker and we can do everything we want to to manipulate um you know cloning and DNA. all of that stuff is still happening bill it's very quiet these days but it's all still happening um but you can't patent human dna god owns that copyright mm-hmm. <laughs> you've got to start somewhere right and he it, it, he started it you know there's some great news on the pro life front on uh human Fetal tissue research. Please tell. Uh, it's been outlawed. The NIH is, de- is not outlawed, Whoa, but the really? the NIH is not getting grants if there is human fetal tissue involved in the research. And some sci- the reporting on it is coming from the other side of the scientists saying, "Hey, they're taking our money for some philosophical nonsense, and here we are, um, you know, curing disease." But all you have to do is look at one of the longest standing experiments where they have been using human fetal tissue injected into mice to try to cure various diseases. And it's called the humanization of mice (laughs) program. So let me get this straight. All you're doing to the mice is injecting them with fetal tissue. If that makes them human, then what is the fetal tissue derived from. Oh, must be a human being, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Bill, let's go back to World War II and the Nuremberg trials. The Nazis could have had some great breakthroughs with Mengele's experiments. I mean, they were extensive, right? Mm -hmm. But the Nuremberg trials decided unequivocally for all time that medical research conducted without the consent of the subjects is unethical and should, and should never be uh, published, should never be utilized. And how can a fetus consent? Can't. To giving its life for science. Mm. So that's a huge breakthrough that the NIH is um, forcing scientists to look elsewhere. And to not exploit human life in their experiments and in their breakthroughs.
0: And is part of that a result of um, the work that was done undercover with Planned Parenthood? Yes. Interesting.
2: Absolutely. Because Marsha Blackburn was one hero in the, uh, she was in the Congress, she's now a senator from Tennessee, but she was one hero who pressed for an investigation as to what was actually happening with fetal remains Mm -hmm. uh, from abortion providers. And it's a very tricky thing to find out, Bill, because you know, the, the abortion industry is less well-regulated than veterinary clinics. Wow. Under the privacy provision of Roe v. Wade, there is no mandated reporting by any state or government um, facility that says, you know, you need to tell us what you're doing and what the outcomes are and where the fetal remains are going and so on. And so th- this was one of the things that she pressed to find out about and to get some reporting on and to put some regulations around it. There was some regulations were already in place, but she press to have them strengthened.
0: Mm-hmm. Kim, you make me happy when you come in. Thank you so much for being here.
2: There's a lot to hope
0: for. Oh, is there ever. Kim Cattola's <laughs> been my guest. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Michael Brown's going to be joining us about his uh, new book on Job. Be right back.
2: On Faith Radio.
0: I always have to wait for the trumpet before I start. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Michael Brown is my guest. He's president of Fire School of Ministry and has served as adjunct professor at seven leading seminaries. He holds a PhD from New York University and hosts the Line of Fire. He's written 35 books, roughly. And he's got a new book out called Job, the, uh, The Faith to Challenge God. Michael, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be with you, Bill.
0: Yeah. And I love this opening line, Job interprets us more than we interpret Job.
1: Yeah, having spent years and years studying Job, teaching on Job, and then in most recent years writing a commentary on Job, it's remarkable that uh, when you look at biblical commentaries, they're pretty much telling you what the book says and the message of the book and the interpretive issues with the book. But Job is so unique, and there's so many different ways to approach it That when you read a Job commentary, you find out more about the person interpreting it. It it opens up (laughs) questions in their life, in their mind, and then how are you going to approach it? How are you going to relate to Job? So, you know, at the beginning of the book, God says about Job, there's no one like him on the earth. And I feel it's the same thing about the book of Job. There's no book like Job on the earth.
0: Has uh, the book of Job fascinated you for quite a while?
1: Yeah, from my earliest days as a believer, and, and right now, 48 years later. So when I came to faith, I came out of a kind of a wishy-washy Jewish upbringing. We weren't religious Jews. So even though I was bar mitzvahed at 13, I never really read the Bible. And then once I got saved at the age of 16, coming out of a heavy drug background, so now I'm reading through the Bible, and, and I finally get to the book of Job. And of course, the beginning, first two chapters, that's wild. I mean, this, this argument or this dispute between god and and, and satan the adversary and because of that there's a challenge you know take everything he has he's going to curse you to your face no one really serves you without ulterior motives and god says not job and so satan attacks everything's taken and his health is taken and he still worships god so that's that's dramatic that's amazing and then the dialogue begins and first job curses the day of his birth in the third chapter and i remember reading it thinking. Yeah, I understand that. And then Eliphaz, the first of the three friends to speak, he he corrects Job and he rebuts Job in certain ways. And that's chapters four and five. And I read that and thought, yeah, amen, I, I agree with that. <laughs> and then Job rebuts Eliphaz in six and seven. I thought, well, I agree with that. <laughs> and it was chapter after chapter, the argument going back and forth. I agreed with everybody, which was impossible. You know, it reminds me of the story of, This rabbi was counseling a married couple, and his assistant was there, and and the husband proceeds to explain why all the problems in the marriage are are the wife's fault. And and the rabbi says, you know, you're 100% right. And the wife is flabbergasted. She said, rabbi, that's not true. The problems are 100% his fault. She gives her case, and he says, you know, you're 100% right. And then the assistant says, rabbi, they both can't be 100% right. And he goes, you're you're 100% right. (laughs) So that's how I felt reading it, and then Elihu comes in, yeah. uh, out of the blue, unannounced, and he's not mentioned at the end of the book. He just pops on the scene. And and what's interesting is that when I was teaching uh, on uh, classes that related to Job from, all oh, like the mid-80s into the early 90s, every year I would give the students an assignment to write a paper on Elihu and to determine whether he was a really good guy, you know, representing the voice of God. Was he just full of himself? And Every year, without fail, for years, the papers would be completely evenly divided between those who thought he was great and those who thought he was foolish, and that's the same with commentaries. You've even had Job commentators where, over the course of their lives, they flip-flop on Elihu, and then after Elihu's done, you don't know what to make of that, then God comes on the scene, but instead of addressing Job's questions, or even talking about justice or the problem of suffering, he talks about wild goats have you ever seen them you know give birth and where were you and i created the universe and you know about the ostrich and the horse and and then and then talks about these creatures behemoth and leviathan what is that about mm-hmm. and then job is completely humbled and and recants you know he basically as i've translated i recant everything and then god turns around and commends job whom he just rebuked and and says to the three friends I'm angry with you because you didn't speak about me what was right, as Job did. You think, Job spoke what, he just got rebuked, then he spoke what was right. How is that? And then God restores everything double, and he lives happily ever after, Uh, Job does. So it's just, wow, there's so much in the book. So it's fascinated me, and it was about 10 years ago, I was teaching an intensive seminary class. So it was uh, five nights, 6 to 10.30 at night, and then all day Saturday, and and the book of Job, and I got so gripped with it, I thought, I've just finally got to write a commentary. So years later, we're finally able to produce that.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful piece of work, uh, Michael. when I think of Job, and I think of the Bible calling him uh, blameless and upright, you would think if that's how you were described in life, you'd be getting a pass on suffering.
1: Yeah. So that's the way things seem to be. Initially, the the orthodox type of idea that the righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed which is reaffirmed over and over in the bible especially in the old testament that basically that that's the way it was for job he was the the most godly man on the planet and he was the the wealthiest most prosperous man on the planet and then calamity hits where where's that fit how does that work right. I, I, I it's kind of like you serve the Lord your whole life, and then you die and you find yourself in hell. It's like, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And, of course, neither Job nor the friends know what's happening behind the scenes. So the friends basically have to draw a conclusion. And based on their limited theology, which had certain rigid walls to it, their only conclusion was, well, Job is obviously suffer, suffering for his sin, because this doesn't happen unless you've sinned. So we thought he was righteous, so... He must be a righteous man, but there's some sin in his life, and God is chastising him. That's the only thing that made sense to them. When Job rebuts them and begins to accuse God, now they realize, wait a second. Job, you're a wicked man. That's why your kids died. You're wicked. You need to repent. Uh, so the, the friends have no other category. Therefore, they have to judge Job. And we do the same thing. Rather than let our rigid theology get challenged at all, we have to have a reason that that person got sick or a reason that they got in the car. Right. Or, or a reason that loved one died. Obviously, I mean, you're you're, you're something wrong with your doctrine. Or it's because you left our church. Or you must be in secret sin. So that's what the friends did, which was a terrible mistake. Job, on his part, knew he wasn't wicked. And, and he knew that he wasn't suffering for his sin. He sinned during his suffering. But he wasn't suffering because of his sin. So the only thing he could determine was that God was not acting justly, that there was something wrong with God. So the friends wrongly judged Job, and Job, on his part, wrongly judged God, and there was actually something else going on.
0: Mm. All right, Michael. So Satan gets kicked out of heaven, and this is kind of the creep, one of the creepy parts of the story for me, is somehow Satan now has access to God to have this bar- this bargaining kind of uh, encounter?
1: Yeah, well, it seems that the access he has is because of God's will. In other words, God is still God. God, God is still the God of the entire universe. And, and just like he can call Nebuchadnezzar his servant, a, a wicked, idol-worshipping king, he can call him my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, or speak of Assyria as the rod of his anger. So a pagan, violent nation, he can call the rod of his anger. The same way, he can gather all the heavenly hosts before him. And as you read between the lines, and I try to draw out my commentary, even in the translation, is that when God says to Satan, when he literally the adversary, the accuser, where have you been? His answer is somewhat, going through, back and forth through the earth, it basically as if to say, everything looks good here to me. That's a wicked group of people there. Uh, you don't have people that really love you and really serve you there. I, I like what I see which is why God then says, have you considered my servant Job? Mm. There's no one like him on earth. And, and what God is saying is, there are people like Job who worship me, who are upright because it is the right thing to do, not for the benefits. And that's now a, a cosmic challenge that's going to be played out. Job is the player in, in a much bigger picture. So the attack that he comes under is is not so much because of himself, although he grows and and what was meant to destroy him makes him a better person. But this is meant now for all of us, that something is going to play out, which is going to become a message that is sounded through the heavens and a message that billions of people can benefit by through the centuries.
0: Mm -hmm. Because, uh, Michael, certainly human suffering is something that is uh, an issue everybody thinks about and deals with. And I've oftentimes heard people say, you know, so-and-so is having a, almost a Job experience. And I, I always kind of pause when I hear that because I don't think anyone's had Job's experience.
1: No, I mean, people have suffered terribly, but, but look at what happens in a short period of time. First, all of his possessions he loses, basically in, in, in a single day. Mm-hmm. Gone, one after another, gone, 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 everything lost. Then all ten children. It right. takes a lifetime to, to have ten children. Yes. All ten children killed the same day. And mm. what does he do? He worships God. He, he doesn't flinch. He worships God. O- already the adversary's accusations have been proven wrong. But now shortly thereafter, we don't know how long. There's a Jewish tradition that, that, that puts it in, in uh, specific dates, but we really don't know how long. But it seems to be not long after that. Now Satan challenges again and now smites him from head to toe with a, it, it, whatever it was. It must have been the worst possible disease to put on someone without killing him. Mm-hmm. So he's lost his, his prestige. He's, he's out on the ash heap with a broken piece of pottery scratching himself. He's lost his children. He's lost his possessions. And there must be this massive faith agony of what happened. Well, th- this is not the way it's supposed to happen, and, and who who is God? I thought God was a certain way, and I ser- had a certain relationship with him, and, and, and I thought that brought blessing and honor, and everything's lost. So he's got that agony. Even his own wife says, you know, how long are you going to hold on to your integrity? It's extraordinary that God says to Satan, in Job 2, that, that look at him. He's still holding on to his integrity, even though you're moving to destroy him without moving me to destroy him without a cause. God commends him for holding on to his integrity. His wife says, how long are you going to hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Maybe she just couldn't take seeing him suffering anymore. He's got that agony. And then the friends come. They mean well. But as, as one pastor once said to me, they were doing great until they opened their mouths. So he's got to deal with all that. And, and yes, people have Job-like experiences, yeah, you know, you just think of someone loses half their family in a tragic accident mm-hmm. or, or, you know, a plague sweeps through and next thing your children are gone, people have horrific experiences, which is why the book of Job is so important, because it's raw. I really tried to capture that in the commentary, not sanitize things. Oh, well, praise the Lord, sometimes we go through hard times. Oh, Job was in agony, and Job had it out with God, and, and it's a way of saying, hey, if you're so raw— and you're so hurting, open your heart. You you know, God puts books like Job and chapters like Laments in the Psalm. He puts those in the Bible to say it's okay to be in pain and it's okay to have questions. And at times like that, God might appear to you to be a monster. It may feel like that. That's not the case, but that's how it may feel to you. That's okay There is going to be a positive outcome in the end.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, Dr. Michael Brown is my guest. His book is Job, The Faith to Challenge God. And we'll take a little break and we'll be right back with lots more with Michael. Talking about the book of Job, Michael, Doctor Michael Brown has written a book called "Job: The Faith to Challenge God." And Michael, I was thinking, you know, the 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 package of losing your belongings, your children, and then having your health destroyed. Have you ever thought as to why Job's wife never was taken as well?
1: Well, some claim that that was part of judgment on Job. You know that he he suffered with him with a terrible wife. But the, the bottom line is, she's part of the, the good news as well, and that in the end of the book, when he has 10 more children, it's, it's presumably with the same wife, it doesn't okay. say anything different. But it, it could just be that in terms of the dynamic and, and Satan trying to get Job to curse God, that he knew at that moment that her emotions would be such that, that she would urge him to do the wrong thing. So in that sense, she ends up, at least at that moment, uh, being a voice for Satan. Because she says to him, just curse God and die. And that's what Satan wants. So just knowing the dynamic, the emotion, at that time, uh, she was more of a, a hindrance than a help, and, and so played in uh, in that situation. It's a good question to yeah. ask.
0: Say, uh, Michael, I know in your book you addressed some of the, the comforters, some of Job's friends. They were, you know, the so-called comforters. Uh, but didn't they make some false assumptions about his suffering?
1: Yeah, see, here's the thing. Taken in themselves, if you just pull the chapters out from, from Eliphaz and from Bildad and from Zophar, and we could say the same for Elihu as well, but if you just pull those out, and stand them on their own, they'd be fine. In other words, the wicked suffer terribly. The righteous are blessed. God chastises the righteous. In fact, throughout the book of Job, which has an ancient account, but we understand it's written down much later, it's making subtle references to other verses within the Bible. Uh, For example, verses about divine chastisement of the righteous, it's taking themes, say, from, from Proverbs and putting them in there. So in themselves... The things were true, but they were wrongly applied to Job. So, for example, when Eliphaz beautifully talks about divine chastisement and in the fifth chapter, it's one of the most beautiful statements about how, how God purifies the righteous and disciplines the righteous and how we now grow and out of that have an even greater, more blessed relationship with God. It's a beautiful passage, but it didn't apply to Job because he was not being chastised by God. In the same way, when, these, when they see, okay, all your kids die. That, that just doesn't happen. That's not a coincidence. That's not chance. That was, that was an act of, of somebody. Well, who? Obviously an act of God. So, Job, there's something going on here. You know, you must have sinned. And that's why these terrible things happen. I remember when I was a fairly new believer... There was a family that went to our church, and then they left our church to go somewhere else. And, you know, in these little days, you think your church, that's the, the place. You know, that's all I knew. And they left our church, and they were going somewhere else. And there was a hurricane that, that swept through Long Island. And a, a tree fell and went through the roof of their house. And I remember the pastor's wife saying to me, God protects his own. <laughs> because if they had stayed in our church, they wouldn't have had that that tree fall on them. <laughs> but but I actually have it at, at the end of the commentary, Bill. I have some reflective essays where I talk about these issues. I talk about Job, what he would say to the new atheists. I compare Job to Jesus, what compares, what doesn't compare. I ask, you know, what Job would say to a sufferer, and and, and things like that. And and there's one uh essay in the back on the dangers of holding to a too rigid orthodoxy and what i mean is when you're like the friends that everything has to fit into a neat category and you'd rather judge the person than question your beliefs and see here's here's where we we can really easily fall into this trap well if something that bad could happen to a godly person then maybe it could happen to me or to my family since I can't possibly countenance that, and it doesn't work with my theology, I'm going to have to say that Job must have sinned. And it's often because of our own security in God that we have to come up with reasons and excuses for other people's suffering.
2: Mm.
0: So I know when Job is in his, full of his misery, he seems to kind of cry out in ways that we all feel at times. You know, he said, I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. So what is the lesson there, Michael?
1: Well, that's good news that that's in the Bible. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd think I'm the only one this ever happened to. God must be mad at me, or maybe he's not even there. Uh, In Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus teaches his disciples, gives them a parable to teach them to always pray and not lose heart. Well, that's significant because he's telling you, you're going to feel like losing heart. Uh, The verses in the Psalms, how long, O oh Lord? I, I wet my pillow with tears. Why is that important? It's important because that's often how we feel. Forsaken, abandoned, rejected, uncared for. And what Job does is, is he takes refuge. He runs from God to God. He accuses God of being a monster. So that's where he goes too far. But he's speaking out of his emotions. God say, hey, I understand. I'm putting that in the Bible for your sake. So on the, on the one hand... Out of raw emotion, he's accusing God. You're a monster, and, and, and you, you blind the judges on the earth. If it's, not, if it's not you, then who? And when the wicked are prospering and the, and the righteous are suffering, you look the other way. So on the one hand, he accuses God, but where else can he go but to God? And, and this is where he's making his right appeal. Like God, there must, there must be justice in your universe. You are not the kind of God that can do this. So he's basically saying, God, I expected better from you. And even though he wrongly accuses God of doing evil, he rightly expects better from God because ultimately, even though it was God who, in a sense, orchestrated this whole scenario, God wouldn't touch him. This is the work of the evil one. Mm -hmm. God does not just go around indiscriminately destroying the lives of his people or killing their children. So there's even that lesson to see as well but that to me is is one of the one of the, the verses i i thought about the most and one of the verses i most enjoyed commenting on was job 42 7 where god commends job he calls him my servant three times in verses 7 and 8 my servant job three times and he commends him for speaking what was right concerning him and that was to know that that god the god that he knew had to be better than the God he was experiencing. And it was true.
0: Michael, I don't know if you know what you're doing here, but you're exciting people to buy your book to learn more about Job.
1: <laughs> well, that's, hey, listen, I'm thrilled to do an <laughs> interview with you just to, to share with your listeners what I've learned. Yeah. But you better believe I encourage people to read the book. I mean, I worked on it for years. And then when I was done with it, I had a problem. And the editors said to me, both PhDs from Harvard, There's a problem, you wrote this book for two audiences at the same time, for the scholar and for the general reader. It can't be both, you have to pick your audience. So I went back, I took all the scholarship, but I packed it in in a way that anyone can enjoy it, anyone can benefit from it, did a brand new translation. And then in the back, if you really want to dig into the key verses and really dig further into Hebrew, we have some special essays as well. So uh, we're, we're really hearing great reports from readers and it's just such a majestic book, often so misunderstood, that, that I felt if I can help people encounter Job and encounter wow. the God of Job, then all the years of effort would be worth it. Yeah.
0: I, I know that suffering, for just it can twist people's and warp their perspective, and it's so difficult, and it's hard to say that there very well could be tremendous blessings following suffering, because Job certainly did have that. Um, And is that that a pattern, Michael, that that there is going to be blessings following suffering?
1: Yeah. Look, Job becomes a better man through the agony. Job ends up with a better relationship with God. Job ends up with double the possessions he had and with 10 more children, which is also God saying, obviously, you can't replace children. Mm -hmm. So here are 10 instead of 20. And maybe the hint that the other 10 are, are waiting for him in the world to come. But it is telling us that in the end, either in this world or the world to come, God will bring blessing. And Job is basically saying, "Look, I've been to hell and back, and I'm telling you, God is trustworthy." He's talking to people now that see no hope, and and the the diagnosis came in, and the the leukemia in in your child is incurable, Mm. and and your, your husband just left you, and the divorce is final, and you're about to go bankrupt, and at this moment, it is darkness and only darkness. And you see nothing beyond that. Job's saying, I, I lived in that darkness. I know what it felt. In fact, my words are recorded during this darkness. But I'm telling you, our Redeemer lives. And I'm telling you that in the end, God will demonstrate His goodness in your life. So there's so much to be encouraged by. But just knowing, look, if, if you pick, picture a woman that's never seen another woman give birth, and no one ever told her about it, And now she's nine months pregnant, now what's happening? And now suddenly she's experiencing the worst pain she's ever known, and it's not going away, and it's getting worse. Little does she know she's about to produce brand new life. A human being is going to come forward. And now she can tell other young mothers, yeah, the pain is terrible, but here's what comes out of it. God will be glorified, and our lives will be blessed. And Job is telling you, you're not alone in your pain.
0: Michael, you've just excited all of us to go study Job Michael Brown's book is Job, The Faith to Challenge God. You're going to want to get your hands on this one. Michael, thanks for doing the show.
1: Oh, always my joy. Thanks. Thanks so
0: much. That wraps up our show for the night, and uh, what a great show. Thank you so much to Dr. Michael Brown for joining me in this last half hour. If you've missed any of this, I promise you're going to want to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Go to the show page and start from the beginning, because he gave us a lot to study and to learn. And have a great night, everyone. Um, I will see you tomorrow. God bless.